Be Exodus 3, I'll be reading from verses 6 to 12. I'm sorry, 6 to, yeah, 6 to 12. Would you please stand for the reading of Christ's word this morning? Starting in verse 6. And he, this is God, said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I indeed have seen the abuse of my people that is in Egypt and its outcry because of its taskmasters. I have heard and I know its pain. And I have come down to rescue it from the hand of Egypt and to bring it up from uh, bring it up from that land to a goodly and spacious land to a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite. And now look, the outcry of the Israelites has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. And now go, that I may send you to Pharaoh and bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring out the Israelites from Egypt? And he said, For I will be with you, and this is the sign for you that I myself have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the hymns that we can sing to you. We can sing to you because of Christ's own death and resurrection. We can praise you because death has been defeated, sin has been completely undone, and we are made right with you through your Son. And so, Lord, as we now gather around your word this morning, as we listen for your voice, may you speak ever so clear to us. Shape our hearts and our minds so that we might adore you, and that we might be in awe of you. Speak, Lord, for your church is here to listen. We offer these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> if I can give a very brief overview uh, of where we've been up until this point in January, excuse me, me back up, at the end of December, I put in front of us uh, sort of a, a quest, a journey for the year of 2019. It's a year of small things in which we take the small things that we have, the responsibilities, the roles that we have, and we leverage them for the kingdom. And so we take those smallest of things. And in January, we looked at uh, the Sabbath and we looked at uh, divine interruptions. Uh, specifically, that's holy time. How we can take that time we have, uh, that 24 hours, that seven days a week, that 30 to 31 days a month, and those 365 days in the year, and we can look at how we can leverage our time and set it aside so that Christ might be known. That, as we have found out, is pretty difficult. It is pretty hard to be a Sabbath keeper. It is pretty hard, as we looked at last week, uh, to take the interruptions that we see in our everyday life as truly divine moments in which Christ desires to speak to us and through us. Very difficult. So this month, we're moving on to a new small thing, and that is vows. I thought it was rather fitting, considering uh, February 14th is fast upon us, the uh, Valentine's Banquet next Sunday, but I want us to, to think more broadly, bigger 
once it comes to vows. Vows are much more than just this relationship that you might have with a spouse or even a friend. We find plenty of vows made across Scripture. And in fact, God is a pretty good vow maker. He's good at making promises and giving oaths to a people. And so vows, as I see it, are made, made up of three parts across all of Scripture. Vows are made to another, to someone. Vows are also made in the presence of the triune God, the God who is always near to us. And vows are also sustained and strengthened by God's own grace. And so when we look at vows today, we look at vows next Sunday, we look at vows the Sunday after, we look at vows uh, the week after that, we're going to be looking at how that's true in each of those times, that vows made to one another, they're made in His presence, and they're sustained and strengthened by God's grace. And so when we look at today, we're going to be looking at how God makes a specific vow, what we just read of Exodus 3, but God is a good vow maker because of his faithfulness and perfection. He doesn't break his vows because of who he is as God. And next week we'll be looking at uh, vows in our marriage and vows in our singleness. So these sort of ideas of how we can be uh, good vow keepers before his presence, but also how we can realize that we're good also at breaking our vows. Yet here we have the fact that we are sustained and strengthened by His grace, that grace is still there no matter how many times we break vows. The, week, uh, the Sunday after that, of what it means to be uh, a vow keeper and a vow um, breaker in our church, in churches across the globe. What does it mean to keep a vow to a church and a church to a person, an individual? And as we are working out our faith, as Paul says, in faith in, in trembling and fear. But lastly, February 24th, we'll look at uh, what does it mean to uh, be a friend and keep vows to friends. So we're looking at friendship. And so all of these relationships are interconnected, we'll see. That as God vows to his people, we are to be a vow-keeping people as well. And so the questions that I think we... Uh, have in front of us and the ones that we need to wrestle with as it relates to this morning specifically is uh, I hear this one a lot has God forsaken or forgotten me and these are genuine Christians people who wrestle with their faith but there's this deep doubt that God has forgotten them or forsaken them well how does that relate to God as a vow keeper and a God who is faithful no matter what other question is, why does God make vows and promises? Here's another one. With whom does God make vows? And we'll look at a specific vow this morning to answer that question. What does God, uh, God's vow making have to do with the person and work of Christ? You know, why in the world did Christ show up? Is that really a perfect, clear picture of God's promise keeping, his vow keeping? I hope so. And lastly, how do God's vows affect my Christian walk and my worship? We'll be looking at those questions this morning, but also beyond in the next three weeks ahead of us. So let's look at Exodus 3, as read a second ago. I'm going to work verse by verse as much as I can. I'll skip over a couple 
in order to really bring out what I think the scripture has for us this morning. So as you can see in the bulletin, uh, the, the title is Christ's Witness and Witness. Last week I told you I created a word, interruptibility. I don't think that word exists. But I think you get the sense of what I mean by that, that we're able to be interrupted at any time. That's interruptibility. Witness is actually a real word, and it exists in most dictionaries, Merriam-Webster being one of them. Witness. When you look up witness, you'll see that it's defined as a state or fact of being connected with, connected with and close to someone. Connected with and close to someone. When you see the God of the Scriptures revealing Himself, He is connected with a people. He's connected to a people. We'll see this morning that this is a perfect example. Not the example, but it is a perfect example of when God, He is oathing Himself, allegiancing Himself to a people for purposes that are redemptive, that are dealing with rescue and deliverance. Which means we get to that second word, witness. We know what this word means. We're Baptists. Witness. We mean the fact that we are testifying that something has happened. Church, the greatest testimony that we are testifying about what happened is that Christ rose from the dead. That is the testimony, the witness that we give. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we're still in our sins and our faith is in vain. But since he did rise from the dead, he did defeat sin and death through his own resurrection. We are to be witnesses, testifiers that death has been defeated and we are to live out the Jesus life, this Christ-like life, no matter where we're called to. So witness, I'm going to say, is connected to witness this morning. So let's look at verse 6. And God says this to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What is so magnificent about the God of the scriptures is he is a self-revealing God. He's not obligated to reveal himself to a church. Not, not one sense is he obligated to reveal himself. But he chooses to, out of his grace and mercy, to reveal himself to a people for specific purposes. This is a complete act of grace that he reveals himself to a people. Because he's not obligated to, that's, that's what we mean by grace. He reveals himself. And as he says to Moses, I, I'm not just revealing myself once. I've done it many of times to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. In saying this, when God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush here in this context of what's going on, he is also getting Moses to think about the history that has happened up to this point. Abraham, you remember the promises I gave to him, Moses? That one day I will set aside a people and I will bless them wildly in specific ways. I will bless them by giving them many children. I will bless them by giving them a property, 
a land, but I'll also bless them by spiritually working through them so that other nations will know that I am the God who created everything and who is going to redeem and rescue everything. He is looking back to those stories, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is who I am. That self-revealing God, that rescuer, who is going to pull you now, a people in Egypt, out of slavery and into freedom. I'm going to move you from a place of bondage, literally the physical, geographical place of bondage, and move you to a land of promise and blessing. Just wait and see. When this God reveals himself, anytime in Scripture, get ready. Something big is about to happen. Something big is about to happen. So let's see what that promise is. Verses 7 through 8. And the Lord says also to Moses, I indeed have seen the abuse of my people that is in Egypt and the outcry because of its taskmasters. That's the Egyptian taskmasters. I have heard, for I know its pain, and I have come down to rescue it from the land of Egypt and bring it up to that land, to a goodly and spacious land. What is beautiful about this is that this self-revealing God, he sees the pain, the torture that's happening. He hears the cries of this people, but also he knows it's pain. When we say we know somebody's pain, we use the word empathy. We're able to empathize with them, knowing that this is where they are, they're hurting, and we're able to put ourselves in their shoes. This is that kind of God, the self-revealing God, but also the empathetic God who is able to comfort a people, knowing that he sees the situation, he hears about what's going on, but he doesn't stay removed from it. He comes near, a witness. He is close to them. He's connected to them despite what is going on in Israel's situation. And if you want to this afternoon or this week, read Exodus 1 and 2. And I think you'll get a really good glimpse of what the situation's about. There's torture, literal torture of a people happening. They're given so much work already that they can't keep up with the work. And then Egyptian taskmasters realize, you know what? We don't like them anyway, so we're going to give them more work. Not only are we going to give them where we gave them the bricks to create these uh, places of architecture, we're going to make them now make all their own bricks and build these pieces of architecture. That's what we call oppression, church. When we put too much labor and pain on a people and expect them to do great things, that's oppression. But also you'll find out in the first two chapters there's a great amount of murder happening. The people are, of Israel are having babies left and right, much like my family. And they're having fam, uh, babies so many at a time that they don't know how to keep up with the population. And it looks like, according to Pharaoh, that they're going to outgrow Egypt at the rate at which they're going. And so Pharaoh says, we can't let this happen. 
We especially can't have boys being born because boys turn into really big men. And we can't have people who are really big take over our country. So Pharaoh gives the order, murder all boys. As soon as they come out, kill them. Keep the girls. Those will be good for servants and slaves. They'll be good for our homes to take care of our homes. We'll keep them, oppress them in their own ways. But every single boy that is born, murder them. And so you do have accounts where they're throwing the baby boys into the Nile River, drowning them. God sees that. He hears the cries. He sees the torture and murder happening. And it not only weighs on this God of justice, but it weighs on the people as well. And so what you have happen in verse 8, this is such a beautiful picture because this is the same picture that you have not only in the Old Testament time and time again, but also in the New, and we'll get to that in a minute. I have come down to rescue it from the hand of Egypt and to bring it up. God, if, uh, church, if there's a picture about who God is, this is a God who continually comes down. He moves downward towards us so that he might bring us up. Where he sees death happening, he comes down in order to give life. And so you do have this paradigm throughout the Old and New Testament, a movement down in order to bring a people up. And so you have a God who is a God of the marginalized, the abused, and also a God who is desperate himself for justice. And so he notices these things. He sees it. He hears these things, and yet he empathizes as well, and he moves down towards this people in order to to rescue them from where they are. But notice what God also does. And we would have to go beyond the scriptures here as it relates to Exodus 3, and we would keep reading throughout the narrative of the Old Testament and into the New as well. But he is good at bringing things from sin to life. He's good at bringing things from pain to joy, from hatred to love, from hopelessness to purpose. And Israel's about to find this out. The hopelessness that they have, they're about to be given a great purpose. That they're about to be a people who are to then witness about what this God has done. This God has come down, he's connected to, he's come close to these people, a witness, in order to send them out as a witness about his rescue and his deliverance. And so if you jump down to verse 10, it says... Now, he's telling Moses, now go that I may send you to Pharaoh and bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. This Moses is given a plan, a purpose. I see the pain. I see what's happening. Now, Moses, I'm about to send you into the midst of this to bring a people out, to be their deliverer and their rescuer. And I want you, by the way, to tell them it is I, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who has sent you for this very purpose. Well, just like any of us, we would ask something like, who am I that I should go? That's a great question that Moses asks. 
I've asked that, plenty of question, that question plenty of times. Who am I? I think you've struggled with this. You have redeemed and rescued me. Who am I? Yet he sends this person, this Moses, on a mission in order to be a part of this great rescue plan that he has. And in verse 12, here we have God saying to Moses, even in the midst of that questioning, who am I? He responds this, I will be with you. And this is the sign for you that I myself have sent you. When you bring the people out from Egypt, you shall worship God on this very mountain. And so here we have the vow. I told you we're dealing with vows. And here's where the vow really comes out. I, I'm going to send you, but I will be with you. This is the promise that he gives to Moses. And it's there for assurance. It's there for comfort. So that Moses, when he is questioning this mission that he's been sent on, this great rescue mission, he can know the Lord is with me no matter what. And so when you have witness, God is coming close to. He comes down to us. He is also connected to us, but he's also going to send this Moses to witness about these things that Yahweh, God, is about to do. And again, you can keep reading beyond in the next 10 chapters roughly is where this great rescue begins to happen. That no matter how many plagues are sent on Egypt and Pharaoh, Pharaoh doesn't get the, get the, the jive of the story. He doesn't get the whole message. His people will be rescued no matter how hard your heart is, Pharaoh. His people will be delivered no matter how much you want to be an obstacle in this situation. His people are going to come out and they will be placed on a mountain beyond here in order to worship him for the goodness and grace that he has brought forth. So here, let me connect these. Witness. God comes close to he connects with his people, witness. He connects with us and he vows to be with us, to be his people, to testify of the great things he's done, but also to worship him. Witness, witness, and worship. Notice that Yahweh tells Moses when they are brought out three days' journey, what are they going to do? Worship me on this mountain. They're going to realize that the grace has been extended to them. And yet, here they are, not in a land of slavery, but they are moving towards a land of freedom. A land filled with milk and honey. This story right here in Exodus 3 is in many ways a picture of the things that Christ performed in his own life and person. I want you now to move, if you have your Bibles, to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. This is the very last chapter in Matthew. 27 chapters before this, we've seen his genealogy. We've seen his ministry throughout all of Israel. We've seen him call disciples out. We've seen him testify that he is indeed the God who has come close to his people in the flesh. 
and he has dwelled with them, if we want to use the language of John, in order to rescue and redeem them and to deliver them back to the Father. I hope you're seeing the connection between Exodus 3 and what I'm about to read here with Matthew 28, starting with verse 16. But the eleven disciples went into Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when he saw them, they worshipped. Sound familiar? Even though some doubted. And Jesus came to them and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, he's sending them. Therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, whatever I have instructed you about. Here it is. And behold, I am with you all the days until the end of age. It's the same picture, church. Here you have a God who dwells with his people in the person of Christ, who is restoring and redeeming them through his cross and through his resurrection. And here you have another picture of Moses before Yahweh, except Jesus is the better Moses. And so here we have, again, Jesus coming to them, on a mountain, they see what's going on, they worship him, and then he's realizing all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. When you go out into all the nations, I'm sending you there, go, be a witness of me. Testify about the things you've seen no matter where you are. Testify about the things that I've done. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to be with you every single day, working with you, in you, and through you so that others might see and glorify our Father in heaven. Church, it's the same picture. Exodus 3, Matthew 28. This is the same God who reveals himself. This is the same God who promises to be with us. And to testify in and through us. So if you doubt, like I asked at the very beginning, has God forsaken and forgotten me? No, not this God. He is always with us. He is always working in and through us. He will always be beside his church. He vows and promises that. We see it not only in Exodus 3, we see it in Matthew 28. He makes it with this church so that we might testify to the person and work of Christ himself. And so should it affect our Christian walk and worship? You bet. Because all authority, he says, has given, been given to him in heaven and on earth. In other words, there's not a single square inch of your life and not a single square inch of anywhere you travel on this planet that Jesus did not say, mine, I own it. I have redeemed it. I have restored it. I'm in the process of bringing all things back to the Father. So yes, this God comes with us. This God witnesses through us. He has made a vow to never forsake us. And so we can be assured, we can be confident that this God is not far away. He is near. And so as we travel this week into our journeys that Christ has sent us on, 
we can be assured and confident that he's going to do his work. And just like Pharaoh, who was hard in heart, he didn't understand that this God was going to make sure that his purposes, his rescue, his redemption was going to happen. We can be assured of the same thing, that Christ is going to have his plan fulfilled. And so let us step back and allow him to work through us in our witness, but also our worship this week. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for such a clear reminder that you are a God who is ever so near. A God who does not forsake his people. A God who is always before us, ahead of us, behind us, alongside us. We could come up with all of the terms, but you're close to us. You're connected to us. And as Christ has been the one who defeated death, he is our rescuer. And so may we testify with our lips and our lives this week that that indeed has happened in and through us. That you are shaping us into a people that look more like Jesus and less like ourselves. And so continue your work, Christ, through your church. We ask, we truly do plead with you that that would be the case this week. In our jobs, in our families, in the services that we offer to others, work in and through us because we know you're with us. Now may we witness to your goodness and grace. We offer these things in the name of Christ. Amen.